Well, welcome everyone. I'll call everybody to order here. Uh, Bob's voice is still out. We're trying to heal up our star pitcher here. And so we're going to give him a little bit more rest. But we have 20 minutes left on the Emerging Church video that he showed last time. Again, this is a message he gave back. Was it 2008, Bob? Yeah. And so we'll have plenty of time for discussion afterwards. And we also have a PowerPoint that Bob has prepared to kind of lead some discussion points. And one of the critical areas that we want to get into today is in the epistemology that is the understanding of knowledge that the emerging church has. Once you're equipped to see what they're doing and able to refute it, the emerging church falls like a deck of cards. So with that, let's just begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together today to learn more about your word. And as we look into this air of the emerging church, I do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us each to be able to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints, that you would equip us Help us to think clearly and help us to know, Lord, that we can have certainty in knowledge that comes from your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First session is going to be about the emergent church or the emerging church. It's called both. And one of the things that causes people to wonder about the emerging church is the fact that they don't know what it is. What's the emerging church anyhow? Well, wait a second. What's the point of being in a church if you don't have anything to believe? All right. What's the definition of church anyhow? Aren't we the called out ones? Aren't we the ones who have been converted and brought together in the body of Christ? But we can't tell anybody what we believe because they may not agree. All right. Rob Bell calls what I preach brickianity, building a wall with bricks, theological bricks, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the trinity, uh, eternal judgment, the doctrines, repentance, like it says in Hebrews. That's just building a brick wall. He wants to jump on a trampoline that's kind of loose and in the air and invite people to join him in jumping. How do you know you're going to end up in your leap, going to end up anywhere you want to be? Because you're on a tractor beam of redemption. Well, you can jump all you want. The tractor beam won't let go of you. It's pulling you to the mothership. Emergent boundaries. I use this slide, by the way, in my debate. They're contradictory and paradoxical. They love paradox and mystery. So what is a church? This is pageant again. What is a church to hold of? It isn't a classic statement of faith. I suggest holding to all the church has held throughout its history. If a belief is in harmony with historical Christianity, then it should be seen as a valid position. This means people will often hold contradictory positions, but this is a good thing. Now, I put this slide up during a debate, and when uh, Pastor Paget had his turn for rebuttal, he asked for this slide to be brought back. And he looked at it, and he says, I like this. This is exactly what I want to say, and, I, and that's exactly what I mean. Well, my point was, a par- how can you have a paradox? So you have Arianism and the belief in the deity of Christ in the 4th century. The, both, those, both of those ideas were held in church history. Arius says there was a time when he was not. Christ was a created being. The, the, the true doctrine of the Bible was the, the deity of Christ. He's eternal coexistence with the Father. Those are contradictory. You can't hold them both. It's an either-or situation. A paradox is like a square circle. You can talk about it, but you can't really visualize one, can you? You can't, you can't create one. It's a meaningless statement. So if you're going to talk in paradoxes, you're just saying, I'm not talking. I'm saying nothing to you. Square circle, square circle, square circle. One hand clapping. Back to that again. Not hearing anything, not saying anything. The emergent church hates systematic theology. That I can tell you, reading essay after essay, monograph after monograph, and other literature, they hate systematic theology. What's systematic theology? What's what I had to learn in seminary? All right? 
it's taking all the big important doctrines of the Bible and surveying all that the Bible says about those doctrines and then coming to a theological position based on all of the things that the Bible says. So systematic theology would yield, for example, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Because if you only read some things the Bible says about Christ, you can, read, you can say Jesus is human which would be true as far as it goes. So if you're not systematic, you could leave out the humanity of Christ or you could leave out the deity of Christ. But if you're systematic and you take everything it says, then you have a true doctrine of Christ. They hate that. They, they will not tolerate it. In fact, McLaren says it's just shrink-wrapped and freeze-dried and put in a drawer. Because everything has to be evolving. Once you've made your statement, the Trinity or future judgment, whatever, and it's systematized, then you have truth and propositional truth at that. And here's what McLaren says. At the heart of the theological project in the late modern world was the assumption that one could and should reduce, no, this isn't reductionistic, but that's what he says, all revealed truth into propositions and organize those propositions in an outline. But McLaren says, Bart, that's a German theologian, a neo-Orthodox theologian, anticipated the day when the common sort of systematic theology would become a historical artifact. Prose abstractions just don't contain or convey God's truth as well as we thought they did. What is a prose abstraction? It's a statement of truth. What's a proposition? It's a statement that can be judged to be either true or false. All right, let me give you a prose abstraction. Are you ready? Don't fall asleep. I haven't said it yet. Nobody wants to hear prose abstractions. Here it is. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. Why is it a prose abstraction? It's not poetic. It's not mysterious. It's not paradoxical. It's a truth claim. It's a propositional truth claim. And it can be found out to be true or false based on evidence. That's what I believe theology is. They do not. Everything needs to be mysterious and paradoxical. Here's what Paget says. If we think the job of the preacher is to make truth claims that secure the beliefs people already have or present truth claims to non-truth holders so they will accept them, we have a problem. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, I'd have to disagree. Well, I suppose it would be if we think that that was the job of the preacher. I'm obviously disagreeing with him. But we really don't have a problem because it doesn't seem too many preachers anymore believe that anyhow. Are you following me? In other words, you're not, too, you're not going to get your feathers ruffled going to church and hearing a sermon because the preacher doesn't give you truth claims. He gives you little ditties about how living a better life. Or little stories about life. But he says that it's a problem even to think that that's what we should do or we could do. Oh boy, this is going to be fun. Deconstruction and reimagining. Have you heard the term deconstruction as applied to history and language and what have you? Some, anybody at all? All right, let me, let me deal with this. I'm going to quote from the language of the emerging church. The implications of deconstruction are staggering for Christians doing ministry in the emerging culture. By driving for the one true interpretation, for example, they disenfranchise postmodern readers for whom deconstruction is as much the mother tongue as traditional interpretation is for modern people. What is he talking about? Okay, so you take the Bible, and it says, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. And you try to find the meaning of that. Well, it doesn't work for the young people, because they deconstruct everything. All right? Deconstruct means that somehow or another, there's somebody's bad motives behind this. Usually the motive is seen to be power. Somebody wanted to have power over others, so they made some sort of statement uh, that, that causes people to be bound in it. So we're going to deconstruct it and find the real motives and the real thing. And there's no one true meaning. We can always deconstruct. Now let me go somewhere with this. This next slide. That maybe you've seen one of these shows. Readers will probably learn more about deconstruction through a single thoughtful viewing of the movies The Matrix and The Truman Show than through re reading this entry a hundred times. But probably true. 
The Truman Show, I, I tried to watch The Matrix and I couldn't make it past 10 minutes. I was done with that. That just was, ugh. But The Truman Show is watchable. Okay, The Truman Show is watchable and it's, it's very well done. The Truman Show, Jim Carrey, the actor, is living in a, a TV set, but he doesn't know it. He thinks it's reality. And, 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 and it's a real life type of soap opera that he's living in and all the other people are actors and they know they're actors but he doesn't know this. He thinks this is the real world. And so the, as the movie goes on, little things start to give him ideas that he's not in the real world. Like one day he was standing on his lawn and one of these kind of light, um, spotlights like we have here fell out of the sky and landed on his lawn. Ah, a little clue that this guy's, this isn't the real world. And so as the movie progresses, he finally finds out he's on a, a movie set and this isn't the universe he's living in. And at the very end, he gets across this lake and he gets to the edge of the set and he, and he cuts through it and he steps out. But you know what the viewer is left hanging with? Not knowing if the next version is the real world or another bigger set. You don't know. Does he ever actually find the real world? So deconstruction is saying that we're living in a mentally constructed world that somebody else constructed for us and we're just players on their set. And what we do is tear back that edge of that and step out into the real world by rejecting the socially constructed world that somebody else planned for us and we're going to deconstruct it. But there's no end to the deconstructing and reconstructing because you never, ever know when you get to the actual real world. Reimagining, reimagining. Look at what McLaren says. This full, radiant, glorious experience of God in Jesus Christ eventually revolutionized the whole concept, God. Notice it, concept, concept of God, so that the word God itself was reimagined through the experience of encountering Jesus. Now, do you remember what we were talking about this morning? Okay, you have an experience, but you don't want to have the words that God spoke. God has spoken to us in these last days through his son, whom he's appointed heir to all things. God has spoken, but they don't see it that way. It's not God speaking words that are propositionally true about God and about the world and about us that we can all know to be the same meaning. It's about reimagining God based on your experience. So this has nothing to do with the Christian gospel. So we're just reflecting on Jesus. He says this. You can just have a... a preference about what kind of God and what kind of universe you want. Brian McLaren, General Orthodoxy, page 76. Think of the kind of universe you would expect if God, A, created it. Probably the one we believe in, in, in his pejorative terms. A universe of dominance, control, limitation, submission, uniformity, coercion. Think of the kind of universe you would expect if God, B, created it. A universe of interdependence, relationship, possibility, responsibility, becoming, novelty, mutuality, freedom. I find myself in universe V getting to know God B. What has he done here? He's taken the doctrine of God away from the definitions of the Bible. And he's determining a God according to his own personal preferences. And he doesn't prefer a God who is going to come in judgment. So you just imagine, reimagine God to be something other than what he says he is. Listen to the doubt from the pages of Brian McLaren. Quoting him here. How do I, I know the Bible is always right? And if I'm sophisticated enough to realize that I know nothing of the Bible without my own involvement via interpretation... I also ask how I know which school, method, or technique of biblical interpretation is right. What makes a good interpretation good? And if an appeal is made to a written standard, a book, a doctrinal statement, or a common sense or scholarly principles of interpretation, the same pesky I who liberated us from the authority of the church will ask, who sets the standard? 
you can't know, you can't know, you can't know, you can't know. You're going to interpret it. Everybody has their own interpretation. There's no valid hermeneutic that's possible. We can't know, we can't know, we can't know. We, we, we can't know. But we can experience. What an attack against the Word of God. The Bible says God has spoken. Clear and authoritative and meaningful. Brian McLaren says, no, you can't know. Perpetual doubt. Then he goes on, who's common sense? Which scholars? Why? Don't all these appeals to authorities and principles outside the Bible actually undermine the claim of ultimate biblical authority? Aren't they just a new pope? So he's saying, no matter what you do, you end up with a pope. You have the pope of the Catholic Church, you have the pope of biblical interpretation, and we can't really know what's correct anyhow, so therefore all of this has to go. So what do you have? They have an experience. At Doug Padgett's church, he has what he calls dialogical preaching. They just read the Bible, and everybody goes and says, well, I think this, and I think this, and I think this, and you never come to the conclusion. The Bible has a name for this, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Here's McLaren again. The purpose of Scripture is to equip God's people for good works. Shouldn't a simple statement like this be far more important than statements with words foreign to the Bible's vocabulary about itself? Inerrant, authoritative, literal, revelatory, objective, absolute, propositional. He, he, he wants to reject all of those. So it's just, we're just supposed to be equipped. God's people are supposed to be equipped to do good works. That's all we need to know. But hold on. How do you know who's God's people and who's not God's people? Is there any boundary there? How do you know what's a good work and what's a bad work? Where did you, where did you learn that? You couldn't have learned it from a propositional Bible because you say you don't have one of those. What if you live in a society where what they think is good is actually evil? And you don't have a Bible that can correct that society and you can't go with a predetermined theology to preach to that society. You have to go and get into that society and become a part of it and experience it and end up with their values. But what if they're wicked values? Like Paul said about Crete, the Cretans are lazy, slow, or lazy gluttons. And they even say that about themselves. And he says, this is true, so, so rebuke them that they might be sound in the faith. You, you don't just come with a, a blank sheet and have a theology. Moving on. Ah, I love this one. This is what abductive means. A is for abductive. You, you abduct somebody. See, you're living in this reality that they don't understand because everybody has their own little socially constructed reality. So you go out and you grab somebody and you bring them into your reality and they experience it until they might decide they like it. That's abductive. All right. Go abductive. Get rid of your inductive, deductive outlines and points and make your sermons pointless. <laughs> Boy, I could probably even do that. Imagine all the time I'd save if I didn't have to have a point. Instead of asking yourself before creating a sermon, what's my point? Ask yourself, what's my image? That makes sense, doesn't it? Let's look at the biblical warnings. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Avoid them. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. That's precisely what's going on. They have a false peace. They cling to, the, to the, cling to the false hope that God is still creating and that our help, with our help, the world is going to solve its problems. This is like going to the dentist with an abscess tooth, getting a shot of Novocaine, and going home happy because the pain is gone. Okay, yeah, you got an abscess. All right, you get the shot. You say, feels better now. I'll see ya. Because you can't diagnose the real problem. And what if the world isn't getting better? The whole emerging church movement is predicated on the idea that relativistic postmodern young people cannot be expected to embrace the gospel in terms of it being an absolute truth claim. Therefore, they say it cannot be presented that way. I think they're making a serious mistake. God's power will save the lost by the means he has always saved, and it doesn't matter what year you were born in. 
that many people in our culture are relativistic is descriptively true. It does not follow, however, that the gospel or Christianity must be changed to make it attractive to such people. The reason for this eschatology, which is what sums the whole thing up and holds it together, is that it's the only eschatology that could give you hope with such a, with this, such a hopeless idea about the Bible. We can't know, we can't know, we can't know, we can't know, but we're on the tractor beam. And it's just going to get better. How do you know? Because that's the type of universe we prefer. That's how we know. That's God be, we, we choose him. Last slide. Start with the gospel, end with the gospel. Earlier today, I had the same verse. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to whoever, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek and also the postmodern. Now, I added some there. But Paul meant any category of people that he would think of. It doesn't matter. Let me close with Norm Geisler's gun. You might think that's a funny thing to close with. I was, we brought Norm Geisler in to do an apologetic conference in the 80s, and one of his topics was the New Age. And somebody asked him a question. Well, the New Age doesn't believe in reason and rationality, so how are you going to argue with somebody who doesn't believe in reason and rationality? So Norm says, well, let me give you an illustration. You're sleeping in your bed, and you have an, a, a loaded gun under your pillow so you can protect yourself against harm. Somebody breaks through your bedroom window and is coming after you to maul you and take your money. And you point the gun at him. And the guy who came through the window says, I don't believe in guns. Norm says, pull the trigger, it'll still work. <laughs> and what he's saying is this. God created us in his image. And by creating us in his image, he made us rational. And reason is the only way we can survive as human beings. Because the Bible calls those who reject reason, in 2 Peter 2, unreasoning beasts. We can't live by instinct. We can only live by the rational and by the scriptures. Now, I don't care if the postmodern says, I don't believe in scripture, I don't believe in reason, I don't believe in logic, I don't believe in proposition, I don't believe in a correspondence theory of truth. None of this. I go after them and attack them with all of those things. Not to be mean, but to hope that God would use that to save them. The gospel is still the power of God to salvation, even if people say they don't believe in any kind of a God who would send his own son to die. So that's what we're going to do. So God bless you. Uh, that's the end of this lecture. And one more to go, and I'm still talking. So. So we're going to pull up the PowerPoint here. Did anybody want to just begin by giving any comments or thoughts that they have about what Bob has shared in the both the last week and also this week? Yeah, Paul. This reminds me of a quote from Lewis Carroll that says, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Yeah. You know, yeah, well if the said. Catholic Church gets a hold of that, they'll make Lewis Carroll a saint, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well said, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Ed. The classic rejoinder is always, you've heard this before, but when someone says there's no absolute truth, you always say, is that absolutely true? Absolutely true? Yeah, well said. You know, there's a lot of truth in what you've just said. And let me just, um, as I was trying to think of a way of condensing all of this, the, the choice be before evangelicals and before the world is, are we going to have a theology based on imagination or is it based on inspiration? And it's funny, I have that in my message um, that I have today about the doctrine of election. I'll be challenging us. The doctrine of election is taught in the Bible and if we reject it, we're imagining God to be different than he is. So what's interesting is what we're claiming as evangelicals is that God broke into history and through revelation to his prophets and apostles, 
by them being inspired, he has told us the way the world really is. Okay, so let's back up to theological liberalism. Let's go back into the 18th and 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th. What theological liberals did is they said, your Bible isn't true. Well, we had a robust evangelical response to that. We could prove, we could start looking at predictive prophecies. We could look at science. We could look at history. Do you know last night there was a show about the Hittite Empire? You know, for generations, the Hittite Empire was scoffed at. Many scholars said it doesn't exist because the only place that's ever referred to is in the Bible. Now there's a whole show on TV. I look at my eight-year-old boy. I said, you know what, son? I said, this proves that the Bible is true. He says, how is that, Dada? I said, because for years, no one ever believed that the Hittite Empire was even true or existed because it was only found in the Bible. Now you have a whole TV show about it. Okay, so we largely won that debate. We proved that the Bible was true. So Satan changes tactic. Now the tactic of the emerging church isn't your Bible isn't true. It's you can't know your Bible. Do you see what, he, what they've done? That's postmodern epistemology. That's what Bob is laying out for us. So again, the choice before us is are we going to have knowledge of God that comes from imagination, the emerging church, or is it going to come from inspiration, namely the Bible? And I would say it's the latter. So with that, let me um, delve into some of Bob's points here in this discussion. Well, let me just read through some of these points. Talking about socially constructed reality, what you have to know about the emerging church is they're claiming to us that truth is defined by the group. Now, let me just, before I read this, explain where they get this. There was a... There was a... Uh, a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. How many have ever heard of him? Okay, well, let me just give you this. There's a lot that Immanuel Kant taught. Some is actually worthy of being respectful or respected, but most of it I should, should be rejected. Now, here's why. The major thesis that Immanuel Kant had was that he claimed that there were two worlds. There was what he called the noumenal world. That's the real world. And then he called another world the phenomenal world. The phenomenal world is the way the world appears to us. You look out, you see phenomenon, right? The rainbow is phenomenon. So phenomenon just has to do with the way it appears. What Kant claimed was that you and I are stuck in the phenomenal world, the way the world appears only. We never can have access to the real world. Now, why? Because he says your sense perceptions are imprecise. Because of your biases, you can never actually get to the way the world the way the world really is. Now realize Immanuel Kant's statement is a self-refuting statement because what he's saying is the way the real world is, now he's making a statement about the real world, is such that you can't know the real world. Well, if Immanuel Kant is right, then he's wrong because he can't say anything about the real world. So do you see it's a self-refuting argument? The whole postmodern epistemology is built on a fundamental fundamental error. If you have to have all of your thought be based on a self-refuting argument, you don't have a very good case. And that's what postmodern epistemology is built on. Now contrast that with what we're claiming. Now notice what Bob says here. Emergent theology's false claims. Christianity as we know, as we know it, ha was constructed by people with power who have bad motives. Okay, now what would that mean? Well, it means that you had people who were scholars or scribes in the past, and what they wanted to do was simply gain power over other people. And so instead of your Bible containing the inerrant inspired words that came from God through the apostles and prophets, what you have is a socially constructed power grab by people with evil motives. Okay, now what's a very powerful refutation to that? Predictive prophecy. If God only knows the future and he does, that's one thing that's unique about the Bible is it depicts the future. Well, what that shows us is that we're not getting the mere words of men. We're getting what? We're getting the very word of God. Because yes, men may be abusive, but they don't know the future. And so it doesn't hold water. Notice the next claim. I really This is a great PowerPoint, Bob. Thank you. He says, no one can know what the Bible means independent of their own social system. Now, Bob illustrated that in his message. Notice the socially constructed reality 
of the emerging church. They have a whole reality. They have a whole language system that they use, but it's independent of reality. That's why we here at Gospel of Grace and many other fine churches around the nation spend their time trying to get to the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures are defining reality. The scriptures are what tell you, the, they tell you the way the world really is, the way God really is, the way we really are as human beings. So our response to this is, no, we are not dependent on a social system. We're dependent on interpretation of scripture. Yeah. Um, these are such excellent points. I don't even want to interrupt you hardly. But this one first one there shows me what such a liar Satan is. Because there's a certain element of truth that seems to float in there, but the essence of it is wrong. That's right. Well, well said. Yeah. To have Christianity just merely constructed by evil motives, um, it, it's a broad... I mean, where do we start? Did Paul have evil motives? Um, is that why he was willing to suffer so for the gospel? Uh, did the apostles have evil motives? Were they willing to stand for a crucified and resurrected Christ to the point where they were willing to give their lives up for a known lie? Um, some of these things, when you start out with the apostles and prophets, look at Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, thrown in a pit. It wasn't exactly a lucrative career to be a prophet or apostle of God, right? Right? You say, yes, I want to be a spokesman for God. I'll be hated, mocked, ridiculed, and put to death. Sign me up for that. Well, that doesn't exactly sound like a power grab. Okay, and that's where we have to begin. I'm sorry, somebody else had their hand up. Oh, um, um, Eric? You already made my point. It was uh, regarding that first PowerPoint. You know, the, the early Christians suffered terribly. And, and, well said. And we have the scriptures. We have, uh, you know, the whole study of uh, how the, the scriptures have been preserved accurately and all of that. It's just that. Uh, the, and when I went to college, they taught us the same thing that, oh, this is just, you know, uh, some invented religion to control people. And that's ridiculous. Churches need to really confront that. And a lot of churches, sadly, are, are too lazy to do that, maybe, or maybe they don't think it's a marketable message. But, you know, we have to just resist this sort of thing head on, really. Right. Well said. Um, I always tell people when I'm dealing with them, if they're postmodern, I always tell them that I'm post-postmodern. <laughs> if they're post-something, they're really post-rational. Well, I'm post post-rational. I'm back to rationality. Um, one thing is, that when I was an airline pilot, I went to Bethel Seminary, and that's where actually I met Bob for the first time. So I'm an airline pilot. And I'll just tell you a quick story. I had this old Honda, and I, it, was a really, it was an airport car. Airport cars are given to pilots so that they don't worry about hail. Okay, so I have this old airport car. The, the trunk had rusted through, so I had to bungee down my trunk. I called it a poor man's spoiler because at speed it would come up just a little bit, right? Well, I'm going to seminary and I'm learning about postmodern epistemology. And every class I go into, you can't know truth, you can't know truth, you can't know truth. I'm working on this stuff, I go fly. On Saturday mornings, I'm coming back from flights and I hear Bob DeWay on Jan Markell's show. And in the car that I was in, my, it was so bad that my antenna had rusted off. And so in order to get good reception to hear Bob, I'd have to put my finger up on the antenna. Well, it was, it was cold out. It was the winter time. So then I put my hand on my seat. I'd have to sit on my fingers for a while to warm them up. And then I'd put them back on as I'm driving just so I could hear Bob away. Why? Because he could refute their epistemology and prove that we can know. And I can't tell you what great hope that gave me. To know that someone could take the emerging church on, postmodern epistemology, say, you have a self-refuting worldview, a self-refuting argument, here's the truth, the correspondence theory of truth. We can take them on, on their own terms. You see, we have to beat the emerging church in the arena of epistemology. So instead of believing that we can't know, we can prove that we can know. And one of the things that Bob is going to point out later in his message that I heard him give originally back at Northwestern College, he gave an um, emerging church lecture, is the passage out of John 12, 48, where Jesus says, this is that which will judge you on the last day, the very words that I have spoken. So Jesus certainly expected us to be able to know. How could he judge us by his word if we can't know? Now, notice Bob says all worlds are mentally constructed and propositional truth is nothing but a prose abstraction. 
Well, I'm sorry, Eric has got something back there. Uh, I'm not to, uh, uh, hopefully this comes all right, but I was, what I was thinking is, um, you know, when, whenever we do something, not to cease striving, but to always realize, and I, I know this is, you know, most, you know, in your head, but I, I always like to say when I hear, you know, we can do something, and that's true, but only through God. And even fighting rationality, you know, with rationality, even that, with all of our mind, God calls us to do that, and it really is, you know, I, I say us, but it's, it's really God. I mean, it's both. Amen, Eric. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. What I, I'm affirming is that we can do, namely, we can know God's word because he's made us in his image. He's made us rational beings. He's the one who regenerates us. I'll be laying that out, that salvation of man is impossible. The doctrine of election shows it's only of God. But because God created us in his image, we can know things. We can know truth. That's all I'm claiming. By the way, um, one of the tricks that the postmodern generation will pull on you is if you say that you can know God through language, they'll call you a rationalist. Let me explain to you what a rationalist really is. The example is Benedict Spinoza. Benedict Spinoza was a philosopher who, he was a real rationalist. And what he would claim is that he could sit in a corner, unaided by any revelation, and come to all truth. And so he was doing exactly what you said, Eric. He was relying on human ability alone. We are not claiming that. We are not claiming as evangelicals that we can sit in a corner and come to all truth. That's rationalism. What we're claiming is that we are dependent upon revelation to know things, whether it be general revelation, what we can know about the cosmos through our sense perceptions, or through the divine or special revelation, that is, through the word of God. So we are dependent on revelation, and we are dependent upon regeneration in order to believe. Okay, so yes, we're rational in the sense that we can know what the scriptures have said, but we're not rationalists in the sense we think that we can just sit in a corner unaided by scripture or by any form of revelation and come to all truth. Do you see the distinction there? So if anyone ever claims to you, well, you're just a rationalist, no, say, no, that's not true. I'm dependent upon revelation. I'm not like Benedict Spinoza. Yeah, Eric. You know, that reminds me of one thing, too. Uh, when you get in discussions with people, it's amazing how many devices people have. And, and one of them is labeling. You know, rather, we, we are better off using a substantive description of what we believe rather than, oh, you're a rationalist. You know, you know why not? just actually describe what we believe in. And, and then another one, I know it's, uh, I've mentioned this before in other sessions, false dichotomy. I, I'm thinking of, and uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, in one of the slides uh, where, where the, uh, one of these writers, I think it was McLaren, talked about God A and God B. False dichotomy. Neither of those descriptions really are, they don't capture what the God of the Bible is. And so well said. those kind of things, false dichotomy, uh, that type of thing, there's so many devices that these people use to lie. Well said. They boil down to A and B when, in fact, it's really C or D, right? Right. Well said. Yeah. Brian. This might tie in a little bit to your uh, uh, Romans uh, uh, election thing later on. But Jesus said in regards to the parables that why are you speaking like this? It's He's allowing people to understand the parables. So, number one, if you're not saved, you're not going to understand it anyway without Jesus allowing you to. Well, well said, exactly. So, we're, you're talking about Matthew 13, where the disciples are saying, look, Jesus, why are you speaking to them in parables alone, but to us, you're telling us what they mean. You're pulling us aside and giving us the inside scoop. And Jesus says it's because to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. Literally, the term is granted, didomi. Okay, so to you it's been granted to know salvation. To them it's not been granted. So absolutely, we're dependent upon God's regeneration, but not to rationally understand. It's not that the gospel comes to us in Chinese and we only understand English. That's not the idea. The idea, and I'll show you this in, when we get to Romans 10. In fact, Bob is the one who really helped me understand total depravity 
and the implications of it. And it's from a passage in Romans 10. Remember, that's where Paul says, has God asked us to do something so difficult? That is to ascend into the heavens to bring Christ down or go down to Sheol to bring Christ up. In other words, God hasn't asked us to do something difficult, but what has he asked us to do? To believe the word. Okay, so what Paul was describing there is that we can understand what the word is saying. Where our depravity comes into play is that we are morally against the revelatory word. We love our deeds of darkness rather than the light. That's the issue. And so because God had regenerated the disciples where they're no longer morally opposed to the gospel, Jesus explains what it means. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Let me just hit one item that Bob has said here. I just want to play this out, and then I'll take the question, whoever has it. Notice Bob talks about all worlds are mentally constructed, and propositional truth is nothing but a prose abstraction. That's what the emerging church believes. When they talk about a prose abstraction, they're saying that you can't know truth from language. Okay, now let me just give you a little analogy with that. All, everywhere you go in your life, people expect you to know language. I'm an airline pilot. They say, Ms. Abba 304, turn right heading 240, descend, maintain 3000 until established on the ILS, clear for ILS 32 right. Do I say to them, I have no idea what you're saying. I'm just going to go any way I want. Because after all, that is simply a prose abstraction. Well, if I did that, how long would I live and all the passengers with me and the crew? Well, not very long. My, uh, I have a, a relative, and ironically, her daughter, we were at a, a funeral, long story, family funeral. We go to the funeral. It's a family friend that died. The, the pastor is a woman. Well, this daughter of this relative, she's going to Bible school, and she says, hey, that's not right according to 1 Timothy 2. Women should not have authority over men. They shouldn't be elders right? Well, the mother says, I disagree. They look at me, the pastor, and now I have to say the, the daughter's right. Why? Because she's understanding First Timothy 2. Well, the response by the mother was, well, that's just your interpretation. Now, this gal works for a company, and I said, let's say you send out a bill and you had decided, remember, you have a customer, and they chose to purchase your product for $3,000. You send them the bill. Are you going to allow them to get away with saying, well, that's just your interpretation? How many times do we do that with the, uh, the bill comes at the end of your dinner? The waitress says you owe ten ninety five. Do you say, well, that's just your interpretation? See, we don't do it anywhere else other than the Bible. This is something that Bob has pointed out for years who was very good at seeing this coming in advance, was, uh, who was our, our philosopher buddy? Uh, Schaefer, thank you. Francis Schaefer. Francis Schaefer talked about how every person lives rationally their whole life. You stop at red lights, you go at green lights, you use the law of non-contradiction, but all of a sudden they get to church and they throw knowledge in the upper story as if they can't know. So what we have to say is, of course, written language can present and portray truth. Of course it does. That's the way we live every day of our life. Why are we doing to the Bible what we don't do with any other form of written language, saying, all of a sudden, I can't know. Okay, so with that, I'm sorry, who had a question or a comment? I Luanne. just did, and it kind of goes with all of this, but um, I thought of an example of that is with Daniel, when he read the scripture, and he could read from scripture and understand how long um, they were going to be in captivity, yes. and he was able to talk about, you know, and he believed that. Amen. From Jeremiah, I believe, 2511, he knew they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. He read it. He knew it was about to be over. Daniel 9 records his prayer. You're exactly right. There the prophet read propositional prose abstractions, and he actually came up with truth, didn't he? Absolutely great, great point. Yeah. Anybody's? Oh, I'm sorry, Barbara's got something. I had a chance to ask Bob after Sunday school last week uh, this, and I'm curious if he's had, thought any more what your reaction would be. When this uh, taping was done, it was about 10 years ago, yeah. and my understanding of it is that the emergent church was more 
cutting edge introductory at that time. That's why they were talking so much about what they believed. Yeah. And that's why uh, we were more on the forefront of responding to it. So 10 years later, where do we stand? Is it what they were presenting? Is that now accepted truth? And m maybe uh, where where is the emergent church today? Where do we see it? How is that relevant to us as we um, want to be defending the truth? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, and I, I hate to speak for Bob. I know you've got a little voice. Um, do, do you want to try? Uh, talk, talk to them about how convergent. Convergent plus. Yeah. It's penetrated the whole society. Yeah. Obama. Yeah, exactly. That's right. President. Yeah. You know, a very good point. The first thing I was going to point out, and Bob would affirm this as well, is that it's gone from emergent to convergent. And to a certain degree, that's there's their titling. The emergent is them coming out. Remember, they believe in this helix where they're evolving to perfection. So the emergent is the stage where they're coming out. Convergent is where they're coming together to build the better world, right? Um, I wouldn't say, I would say that they're not as cutting edge as they were. However, I would also say that it's just kind of the predominant thought within the millennial generation. So much so that it really leads to, just as Bob said, the Obama administration. The Obama administration is a postmodern presidency where they can hold on to many ideas that have in no way connection to reality, but they just simply build a narrative. Now, I know other presidents have done that, but you saw it done in spades. You had literally the architect of Obamacare, Jonathan Gruber, say that, yes, of course we were lying to the American people, and then they vote for him again. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Because it doesn't matter. It was their socially constructed reality. Uh, and so Obama, I think, and the Democrat Party in particular, is really an offshoot now of the emergent convergent program. Now, here's why. The people who are leftists politically, they now have a religion that affirms their politics. Their politics is their religion. They're going to bring about the better world through their taking from the haves, giving to the have-nots, Marxism. And they know through Hegel that God is drawing all things into himself. And so no matter what happens, all things are going to head and trend towards a utopia. So they have a religion now that backs up their left-wing politics. And so I would say that this is the predominant view among many millennials. Now, it depends where you go, and I don't have statistics to show you demographically how it breaks down, but I would say it's just rather accepted, the idea that truth can't be conveyed in language, that that's just your interpretation, so much so that my relative, who knows nothing about this, it's just common idea. It's just the common ethos of the age that that's just your interpretation. But where do those ideas come from? It comes from the mental giants, so to speak, the mental, uh, the, the backdrop to the emerging church, that's where it comes from. So now it's just accepted almost as just the way the world is by so many. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I think one other uh, cutting edge thing right now is the, uh, it's a convergence, I guess, uh, and I don't study this full time, but it's the, uh, some of the uh, allegedly Christian churches that are embracing Islam. And uh, having interfaith dialogue type things. Uh, I know Lutheran Social Services, Catholic Charities, a whole bunch of them, and they've got these programs, and it's all designed to really um, kind of merge and all of the things we've got in common with Islam, and, it, and it's a toxic thing, but it, it, it's where we've, we've kind of destroyed language. So, so this, this uh, the emergent or convergent church, it sort of laid the groundwork for this, but what we've got right now is a, a really a toxic brew uh, in the American church uh, yeah. as it relates to this. Yeah, let me just push back a little bit on that, Eric. Let me just make a point. And I, I think you're right, but let me just qualify it a little bit. With this interfaith dialogue, number one, it's nothing new. But number two, I wouldn't say that this is part of the American evangelical movement. What you have is traditionally mainline denominations that for so many generations have been into social justice. Social justice is a Marxist term, okay? So the reason Islam, and they're, they're favoring Islam, and they want to have interfaith dialogue with Islam, is a simple Marxist principle. Islam is the have-not religion. 
So my dad always tells me, he goes, that, that Obama is a Muslim when, when he was the president. And I say, well, no, he's not. He's a Marxist. Marxists say, what's the have-not religion? The Christianity in America is the have religion. It's the white European male-dominated fire-breathing religion. That's what they believe it to be. That's the have religion. Islam is the third world nation's it's the have-not religion. That's why, if you ever notice, Islam can do no wrong. Okay, Islam, they'll murder tons of people per week, and they can do no wrong. It's the religion of peace because the doctrine and dogma of the left is they are forever having to take from the have-not, or take from the haves, the Christian ethos, the Christian-dominated society, and give to the have-nots, which would be those in the Islamic culture. Yeah. Yeah. So it is very good. Does that does that help, Eric? Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, okay. that's good. And you know, there's these are big topics we could go on yeah. and on. So. Yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, you know, if there's any people that go into the emergent church that were um, solid Christians at one time, okay, and they go in there and they hear this false doctrine, are there any people that are leaving the emergent church because of the fact that they reject hell? They, they say that everybody's going to get to heaven, right? It almost reminds me of uh, universalism. There was a well-known yeah. news anchor in Minneapolis-St. Paul that was interviewed uh, some years ago on KTIS, if I, you'd all know him if I mentioned his name. And he said that, fill in the blank, if you're a good this, if you're good this, if you're good this, uh, you're in. You're going to go to heaven. Uh, he believed that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world, but that was it. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Yeah, universalism is part and parcel to the emerging church. You're absolutely right, David, because they believe that God... Remember, fundamentally, we're theists. We believe that there's a distinction between the creator and the creation. Well, what they're doing is they're, they're blurring that line. What they're saying is that God is in everything. So if God is in everything... So realize, they're not even standard theists. They're panentheists, and if God is in everything... Well, he can't judge the world because he'd be judging himself. That really comes from Hegel. He's drawing all things into himself. And so, by definition, the postmodern Hegelian generation has to be universal. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And kind of going with Barb's question, too, you know, about how far we're into it, yeah. I think we can go into and look at what people are reading. We have the shack. We have yes. um, Jesus Calling. All of those things just show how far this stuff has infiltrated. Well said. They're untethered now. What the, what the emerging church did is it untethered people from being bound to know God rationally from Scripture. The, the ethos of the age is that, well, we don't need that. Um, if you have a, a doctrinal discussion, you'll get 50 people who will listen. But if you talk about getting to feel God through mysticism, you'll have thousands of people that will join in. It's the ethos of the age. You're absolutely right. Let me just read uh, one of Bob's points. He says, deconstruction implies rejecting the ability of language to represent or convey reality. This implies rejecting previous truth claims by anyone whose motives we wish to question. And so that's what the postmodern generation is doing. What they're doing is they're saying, you, the older generation, remember the old statement, never trust anyone over the age of 30 or whatever the statement was? Well, at some point, everyone ends up, unless you die early, over the age of 30. So now you and I who are trying to hand down the doctrines of the faith are questioned as having impure motives. Now the irony, of course, is those who are teaching the emerging doctrine, they have doctrine, as Bob has pointed out. Those who are teaching Marxism, they have pure motives, don't they? They have wonderful motives. It's only those who believe in the Bible and who hold to propositional truth, the idea that that can be known from Scripture, have wicked and evil motives. That's what they want to claim. Yeah, yeah those pure motives to strip away all this intellectualism from what's happening psychologically, what's happening with the new, you know, emergent church and the new postmodern stuff is projection of their own, own motives. 
you can't be motivated to seek God and to identify with God and be greedy at the same time. And who's to say who are, who are the haves and who are the have-nots? That's pre prejudging or presupposing someone's value system. Well said. Doesn't it say somewhere in the scripture to be uh, comfort at comfort in whatever state you find yourself in, yeah. however God yeah. is using you at the moment? Well, well said, and yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting to note that they are the ones who define who has pure motives and who has evil motives. And what's interesting is that definition then is independent of the scriptures. And so you end up having man declaring that anyone who can know God through the scriptures has wicked motives. They want to bar you from imagining God and instead being tethered to the inspiration. So anybody who stands for inspiration, we know God through the apostles and prophets, wicked motives. Those who believe they can know God through their imagination and imagine a God that they like better, well, they're just wonderful. Do um, you remember John Lennon's song years ago, Imagine? There's no hell below or heaven above, and there's no religion. That's really a precursor of the emerging church. Now, think about where did the Beatles come from when they were getting into these things? They came from the East. They came from India, and they were getting into Eastern religion. Well, what's the problem with Eastern religion? It's panentheistic. Okay, so that panentheism, anytime you get into panentheism and the Eastern religions, you're going to imagine a God who's different than the one who actually exists. Now, let's read some, through some more of these. He says uh, here, this is an irrational statement because it is a theological claim that motivates their practice. Exactly right. Exactly right. So everyone is biased except for those on the postmodern side, so they claim. Right? It's absurd. Doing good depends on a theological definition of good, which needs to be informed by something beyond the community. A great example, Bob uses ISIS. So think about a socially constructed reality. You can't know truth. So truth is just defined in what the group believes to be true or will accept. So let's say the group you're in is ISIS, and that group believes that it's okay to cut off heads. Is therefore cutting off heads acceptable? Well, it would have to be to the emerging church who holds to their epistemology of a socially constructed reality. What defense do they have against it? Everyone within the ISIS group, the social community, believes that it's okay to cut off heads. There go... Therefore, it's okay to do it. So without an objective truth, an objective reality to appeal to, like the scriptures, you have no rebuttal against doing all sorts of evil. There's no way to refute it. Notice they claim that the kingdom comes through the processes of history with our help. But Bob puts in parentheses, but if we have no theological definition of the kingdom, how do we know what help, what helps it come about? It's exactly right. So remember, what Bob is saying is the core issue in the emerging church is their eschatology. That's what drives it. They believe that everything is going to evolve towards a perfect future. We're reading the book of Revelation. What do we learn? What about those 130-pound hailstones that were coming down? What about the demonic realm being released from the abyss? What about the wars that leave a fourth of the world dead due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts? What about another third of the population that's later destroyed during the trumpet judgments? Over half of the population is going to be wiped out due to warfare in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, that stands in strong contrast to the idea that perfection is coming and that we just join in and find out whatever the world is doing to bring it about. Let's see. I guess we're out of time. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get through all the points here. But um, let, let me just read through these real quick. Reimagining God, emergent claims. The doctrine of God is removed from biblical definitions. Endless doubt is promoted and truth is rejected. Trinitarian panentheism is Trinitarian, not because the Bible teaches the Trinity, but to preserve the principle of rationality. Oh, I'm sorry, relationality. Thank you, Bob. The reason that emergent theology is hopeful is that God is supposedly infused into the creation and in emergent communities, God is thinking about himself. Again, that's the core issue. God is supposed to be infused into all things and therefore... God is certainly not going to judge. God will never judge himself. In fact, one, one interesting thing before we go, Hegel believed that the incarnation of Jesus Christ, what he taught, was that it was designed as a vehicle in which God would start drawing the world into himself. So you and I look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and the whole purpose of it is that Jesus 
the Son of God would become man, and he would live the perfect life that none of us could so that he could go to a cross and die a substitutionary death to make atonement for us and so that we could have his righteousness. But in the Hegelian system, the only reason he came was, in fact, to keep the process of God drawing all things into himself underway. The incarnation was the means by which they were going to draw all of the world into God. Do you see what a distortion that is? So that's why, as Bob has pointed out, the emerging church hates the gospel. They hate the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement is the real reason Christ came. They've distorted that. Okay, so realize when we're talking about the fact that the emerging church says they can't know, they don't have any doctrine, they do have doctrine. It just stands absolutely antithetical to what the scriptures teach. That's one of the big issues. So with that, I'm sorry, we're out of time. Um, Christy, you've got something? Okay, perfect. Okay, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our teacher, Bob DeWay. We do pray for healing upon his voice. We thank you for all the research that he's done. I pray, Heavenly Father, that through the book and through his messages and through the people here going forth with your scriptures and your truth, that many young people's minds and older people's minds who are postmodern, emergent, Marxist, that they would flee these false religions, that they would flee irrationality, and they would come to know you rationally through the scriptures, that they wouldn't have a God of imagination, but one of inspiration through the apostles and prophets. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.